Welcome to another episode of the Ball Till You Fall podcast. I'm recording this on Saturday, October 19th, which means by the time this is posted, there should be less than two days until the NBA season officially kicks off with the Pelicans versus the Raptors, which unfortunately nobody cares about anymore because Zion has been ruled out with a knee injury. But then we get to the main event, uh, Lakers versus Clippers, and what seems like one of the most anticipated opening night games. But this offseason will for sure be remembered by all of the superstars who joined up to form uh, quote-unquote big twos across the league. So what I'm going to be doing uh, tonight in this episode is just going through some of the teams that are serious contenders uh, this season, and I'll be discussing, in my opinion, who the most important player on their roster is outside of that uh, outside of their their big two. So in other words, these will be the guys who, who can be viewed as the most important X factors on these teams. So we'll go ahead and start in the best city in the country, Los Angeles. We'll start with the LA Lakers. So the most important X factor, in my opinion, for the Lakers this season is Kyle Kuzma. Now, this was probably the most obvious and easy choice, uh, in my opinion, out of these X factors, as you'll see. Some of the other guys get a little more a little deeper into the roster before you know you're able to find find their names, but Kuzma I, I chose for the Lakers uh, just for the simple fact that he's already shown flashes uh, in his his first couple years in the league, and plus he's the the lone survivor, if you will, from the Anthony Davis trade. Uh, now I really 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 wanted to put Caruso here because just imagine a bald white point guard breaking out as like a real solid contributor on a huge market team like the Lakers. So that would that would basically be Lynn Sandy, but for middle-aged white guys. But in the end, I couldn't I couldn't pull the trigger on that. Um, and so so again, Kuzma is my choice. Now the Lakers' main weakness right now is their their lack of a of a real solid point guard. Um, Rondo is currently projected as the starter and. Like I've said before, I'm a Laker fan, and that does not inspire much confidence at all. Uh, that does not inspire much confidence, though. And then Caruso is probably the next best option at point guard, who I would love to see him succeed, but I just don't know if we've seen enough from him to really you know, put your championship aspirations on, on him as your starting point guard. So, so the reason why Kuzma is going to play a huge role uh, to, towards the Lakers' success this season is that if he can handle uh, like a bigger scoring load, than we've seen the past couple seasons, and if he can still score uh, efficiently and actually improve his efficiency as a scorer, uh, that that will allow LeBron uh, more more bandwidth, more energy to focus on being being the team's point guard. And as we all know, that's really what that's really what LeBron wants to do at the end of the day. He doesn't want to have to be a scorer. Now he will, and he's probably going to finish his career as either the first or second all-time leading scorer. But LeBron at his core is is more of a point guard. Now, more importantly than Kuzma's ability to score this season, I think his his defensive productivity or just his defensive effort even is going to be really what what uh, will help him have a huge impact on the Lakers. Now, the Lakers have some versatility uh, with their roster. Now, if they were to go small, um, you know, if they were to go small at the end of a game and have Anthony Davis as their center then Kuzma would most likely be playing the power forward. And as we've seen the past couple seasons, he has not been able to, you know, bang down low with some of the, some of the bigger, uh, more physical players in the league. So that's one place where he would really have to step up. If the Lakers need him, him to play four, he's going to have to be able to guard some guys like a Draymond Green or uh, like a Paul Millsap or, or players like that. Now, on the other hand, if, if the Lakers get matched up against, 
you know, a big team, like say the, uh, the Sixers or, or, uh, yeah, let's, let's, let's stick with the Sixers just to keep it simple. Um, where, where a team like that who plays Embiid and, uh, and Al Horford, the Lakers will most likely go with a two center lineup. So they'll probably have Dwight Howard or JaVale at center and then Anthony Davis at power forward. And in that, in that situation, uh, Kuzma would have to play a small forward and there he'll have to really show that he's improved his lateral quickness and, uh, just his just defensive fundamentals, really, because he'll have to be out there on the wing. Uh, you know, he'll have to guard a guy like uh, Paul George or Tobias Harris or someone like that, where he has to at least not be a, a weak spot on defense. Now, because we already know that he'll he'll be able to score. He's already shown that even from the second he came into the league, he was already a pretty polished scorer. But we haven't seen improvement on the defensive end from him, and that's what the Lakers really need to see this season to be able to take that that next step and, you know, really reach their, their potential this season, which is obviously championship team. Moving along, uh, we'll go stick in, stay in the Western Conference. We'll go to the Houston Rockets. Um, they have their big two, obviously, is Russell Westbrook and James Harden. Now, now Harden and Westbrook alone, and then if you also factor in Eric Gordon, those three right there have more than enough offensive abilities to carry this team on that end of the court. But, but as we see year after year in the playoffs – you know, it's cliche, but defense wins championships, and that, that saying is really true. So Capella is, outside of P.J. Tucker maybe, he's, he's, their, he's their rock on defense. He's their, their best defensive player, um, by far their best rebounder. Uh, he, he, had a, he had a good season last year, but he did go through a couple slumps where, you know, he wasn't able to stay on the floor in games because teams were kind of picking on him, if you will, on the perimeter and just having their guards attack him. Um, now, so this season he's going to have to be able to to show that he's improved his you know his his quickness on the perimeter to at least stay in front of guards and not just let them go right by him. But mainly he's going to have to be a defensive anchor in the paint because both Harden and Westbrook, while they're both awesome transcendent offensive players, they're both known to gamble and often fail when they gamble on steals on defense. Um, and, and what that will mean is they'll be giving up a lot more open drives to the basket because when Harden or Westbrook go for a steal and don't get it, that means it's a four on five. So Capella averaged, uh, 1.5 blocks last season, which is solid, but I think he'll have to get that closer to like at least two, at least two blocks per game this season, if not more. Now, then obviously for the Rockets to have a chance to make it out of the West, there's a ton of good centers in the West. So for the Rockets to be able to make it out of there, Capella's really going to have to show that, you know, he might not have the same, same like star power or name recognition as some of the other guys like Anthony Davis, Nikola Jokic, Rudy Gobert, even like LaMarcus Aldridge for that matter. Uh, even though he doesn't have that same star power, he has to show that he can compete with those guys and, you know, make them work for all their points on the defensive end. And then at least he has to make them, he has to make them at least worry about him when he's on offense he doesn't I'm not saying he has to go out there and average like 24 points per game but he has to at least be a threat to you know finish around the basket and catch lobs uh, you know finish on the pick and roll stuff that he's already shown that he is he is pretty good at um now I I I do think that for the Rockets they're in pretty good position if Capella is someone that they're you know banking on to take a huge step forward because he's he's 25 years old now so he's still young but he's been in the league for a few seasons, so he's entering his prime. And he is coming off a season where 
he he averaged 17 points and about 13 rebounds per game. So I think this is a huge season where, in my opinion, I feel confident that he'll be able to take you know that step forward and prove that he's he's one of the better young centers in the league, and that will that will go a long way towards helping the Rockets go far in the playoffs. Um, now we'll we'll again we'll go from LA to Houston back to LA uh, for the Clippers. The player I ended up going with as the most important X factor was Ivica Zubac. Zubac, Zubac, however you want to say it. Uh, this one, this was one of the more difficult um, players to choose from because the Clippers just have so many good role players, and I think they'll all have, you know, they'll all be super critical to the team's success. But in the end, I went with Zubac because the only the only real weakness that you could find on the Clippers roster is their lack of big man depth. So, you know, if this was like if we were in last season where teams like the Warriors or the Rockets, you know, who would go small ball all the time, if, if those teams were still around, then this Clippers team would be perfectly constructed to take them on because you could have, you know, Montrez Harrell could play your center ideally. And uh, you could get away with like, you could get away with playing, you know, you could start Zubac like the Clippers did last season, have him play for, you know, like 10 minutes a half and that's it. He does, he never really finished games for them or he never really played in crunch time when it mattered. But now, now this off season, the league kind of swung back the other direction when it comes to small ball. And now you see, uh, you know, multiple contenders that 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 are going to be rolling out two big men instead of teams that used to go with zero real true big men. Now we're going to see teams that go with two true big men sharing the floor at the same time. So, so like I said last season, the Clippers could get away with playing a guy like Montrez Harrell or Jermichael Green serious minutes at at the center position. But this season, I don't think that I don't think that'll fly. So so think about this for the Clippers to win the championship like a lot of people including Vegas are expecting this is a this is the possible list of big men that they'll have to face in the playoffs in order of round so let's say they get the Spurs in round one you got LaMarcus Aldridge obviously not the same player he used to be but he's still a really capable scorer and he's a veteran so he knows he knows you know how to get it done he knows how to pace himself and perform at his best in the playoffs so they get through the Spurs then next round he either he could go through either Gobert or Jokic, which neither of those is is someone that you want to have to go against for different reasons. Jokic because he'll give you nightmares when he's on offense, and Gobert because he'll give you nightmares when you're on offense. Then if they get through that, they'll probably meet the Lakers in the conference finals, and then you have Anthony Davis, who is you know if not the best big man in the game, definitely top two or top three at worst. Um, and then saying. You know, let's say that the Clippers get through the Lakers there in the finals. You might match up with the Sixers where you have both Joel Embiid, who if Anthony Davis isn't the best big man, it's probably Embiid, and Al Horford. So you have two true centers who are both all-stars when they're at their best, uh, you know, playing at the same time. And I believe that list right there of, of big guys I just named off, I believe that's what you would call a murderer's row. I hope I'm using that term correctly. Um, but that's a murderer's row of big men right there. Um, now, now Zubac I went with as the X factor because he's the only player on this roster that has any chance to slow those guys down. So I know, uh, I mean, I know you don't think of him as people probably just don't know much about him because like I said, he didn't play very much last season, but apparently he ranks, he ranks pretty high in a bunch of those fancy advanced defensive statistics. Now, 
I, I'm not going to go through and list them all off to you because I don't want to bore anybody, including myself, and I don't want to have to like unsubscribe from my own podcast. That would be super awkward. But he did average, well, I'll put it in more simpler terms, he averaged just under 10 points per game last season, as well as eight rebounds and just about a block per game. And that was all while playing barely even 20 minutes per game. So this season, I'm expecting him to have to, you know, the Clippers are going to have to play him a lot more. So he just needs to bump up his, his averages slightly. I'm not saying he has to make a huge leap here, but he has to, you know, score maybe like four more, four more points per game. So be at around like 13 or 14 points per game. And then bump his rebounding up to, say, like 10 to 12 per game. Which, again, he's going to be playing a lot more than he was last season. So I don't think that's a huge stretch to expect that from him. Now, he's only 22 years old, which sounds super young, and it is. But you have to keep in mind that this is already going to be his fourth NBA season. So he's been around the league for a while. And even when he was a first and second year player on the Lakers, he was still getting serious, like pretty serious playing time. So it's not like he... This will be his first time ever. You know, he's, he's been a starter in this league before. He's been a productive big man in the league before. Now we just need to see him take another step forward and just show that he can handle, show that he can handle more of a load. Now, the, the most obvious counter to me saying that Zubac is really important to the Clippers as a big man, you know, people will say, no, oh, Montrezl Harrell is fine. He's, he's their center. You know, he can, he can match up against all those, those superstar big men that I just mentioned. But... While I will give him credit, he's obviously undoubtedly a monster on the offensive end and a true a true monster on the glass, on both offensive and defensive glass. I, and you know nobody gives more effort on him on defense. But at the end of the day, he's six foot eight. So so this is actually weird. He's actually shorter than Paul George, who's six nine. But he's six eight. So I'm sorry, but there's no way that you can realistically expect him to match up with Anthony Davis or Joel Embiid or guys like that for a seven game series. And I, I hate to break it to all the, you know, all the motivational high school, high school basketball coaches out there. I'm sorry, but all the heart and effort in the world, it still won't make up for a four inch height difference. That's, I'm sorry to say it, but that's just, that's the cold truth. Now, after Harrell, who would technically be the backup center to the, on the Clippers, the next center on their roster is rookie Fiondu Cabangeli. And yes, I did say that correctly. You could look it up, I swear. Now, I do think that he has the potential to be a really solid, uh, a really solid, you know, defensive center in the league. But that's that's years down the line, and he's actually the same age as Zubac already. So, I just don't, I just don't know. Like, sure, he has the potential to be solid on defense, but do you really want to, you know, rely on a rookie to guard Embiid or Anthony Davis again, a guy like that in their prime? That just doesn't seem smart. Um, and then, really, just to you know, put a bow on this argument. I think that Zubac has to be the Clippers' X factor for this reason. Imagine, you know, the Clippers, imagine if they get to the Western Conference Finals against the Lakers, they beat the Lakers, and Zubac plays, you know, he plays a significant role in slowing Anthony Davis down even just a little bit. It just makes him work for all of his baskets and puts up solid numbers. Now, that would just be so ironic because just this past season, the Lakers traded Zubac to the Clippers for like a used Xbox controller and like a $10 Subway gift card. Um, oh, wait, no, I just looked it up. Wait, they actually traded. Oh, they got Mike Muscala in return for Zubac. So they would probably have actually rather gotten that Subway gift card. But instead, they got Mike Muscala, who is now on the Thunder. So they basically just gave Zubac to their in-arena, in-city rival. 
doesn't make much sense, but that's why the Clippers are sitting here with one of the most well-balanced rosters in the league. Um, but so that's why I have Zubac on here. And just maybe as a Laker fan, maybe deep down in my subconscious, I'm just rooting for him because he was, you know, he was, he's an OG uh, Laker when it comes to those teams in the past, you know, three to four years who were just horrible to watch. He was one of the lone bright spots. So maybe I'm just, maybe I'm just pulling for him deep down. Next up, we have the Utah Jazz. Now, I think the X factor for the Utah Jazz this season will be Rudy Gobert. Uh, he, he just came off a great performance in the World Cup this season. Um, and and the main thing is that he's a guy who can swing any any series against any of the other contenders just, just really solely off his ability on the defensive end. Um, there's, there's not many players like him in the league, but his defense has the ability to be so disruptive that it'll it can just change the entire outcome of a series and just really the whole the entire uh, style of the series so if you if you go you know if the if the jazz get matched up against say one of the teams that can roll out the twin towers approach with like you know with the two big men so say the lakers the sixers or even the nuggets with Millsap and Jokic, uh then gobert obviously will play a huge role because you you feel comfortable I don't think there's a better player in the league to match up with guys like Anthony Davis or Joel Embiid or Nikola Jokic. Uh, we've seen, even as, as, most, as recently as last season, Gobert gave Jokic fits because he's way more athletic than him, he's longer than him, quicker than him, can jump higher, all of the above, and he kind of just neutralizes a lot of what Jokic does just, just with his athletic ability and timing. Um, then on the other hand, if you, if you get matched up against a team like the Rockets or the Bucks where they have elite guards or you know forwards or wings he can he can again still have a huge impact on the game because because of his ability to just just really block out the entire paint like there's not there might only be a couple other teams in the entire league who have guys like that who can just take away the entire paint uh, just with one player now now the Rockets and Bucks for example they rely on two guys, uh, Westbrook and Giannis, who both of those guys' entire offensive game re- revolves around their ability to, you know, get to the basket, beat their man one on one, which will then allow them to get easy shots, and in turn, then allows uh, then allows for all these passing lanes to open up, and they can kick out to all the the knockdown shooters that they have on their team. Now, neither of those guys who I mentioned, Westbrook and Giannis, can shoot really to save their lives, so. Gobert is one of the guys who can neutralize them to an extent because because when those guys aren't getting to the basket with ease, it really just takes them out of their entire game and and that in turn because their teams rely so heavily upon them, it gets their their team's entire offense all out of out of whack, out of rhythm. So so take for example, let's think about Giannis. So if he's not getting to the basket, if every time he drives, oh, Rudy Gobert comes over to help and even for a guy like Giannis, it's still really tough for him to finish over Gobert. So if that's happening, the the Bucks' entire offense falls apart because Chris Middleton is a good player, sure, but you don't want him having to ISO, you know, the entire game. Then on the other hand, after after Chris Middleton, who what you you want Wesley Matthews or Eric Bledsoe to go one on one with their guy? That's that's a recipe uh, for a second round playoff exit. Uh, then, if if we think about Russ, when he's not getting, when he's not getting his usual, 
layups and dunks, that's when he starts to settle for those annoying pull-up mid-range jumpers. And this season, playing on the Rockets, him taking a bunch of those jumpers in a row might actually cause Mike D'Antoni to quit and just retire from coaching in the middle of a game. Uh, Those shots, just on any team, they're not great, but especially on this Rockets team who just who they rely on perfect analytic basketball where it's, you know, if it's not a three-pointer, it better be a layup. And if it's not a layup, you better get fouled and shoot free throws. So, and we've also seen in the past, we've seen when the, when the Thunder played the Jazz, Gobert just takes Westbrook like almost completely out of the game because he, he can't get those drives again. So, and, and then that's the thing is I didn't even mention a single, a single thought on Gobert's offense because that's, that's how good his defense is potentially that all he has to do on offense is just finish off the lobs and the little bounce passes that he'll get from, you know, pick and rolls because he, he is playing with a bunch of good playmakers. I really think that all four of the other starters on the jazz, which would be Donovan Mitchell, Mike Conley, Bogdanovich and Joe Ingles, all of those guys are above average at worst above average playmakers. So he's going to get a ton of easy looks. They also are all solid shooters, like I've mentioned before, which means the floor will be super spaced. So I think Gobert will average, you know, anywhere from like 15 to 18 points per game, just purely on easy shots. Like he'll probably shoot 60 to 65%. Uh, So he just has to average, you know, let's say like 16 and like 14, 14 rebounds for him and like three blocks. That's, that's perfect. That's like perfect ideal Gobert numbers for the Jazz this upcoming season. And if he's able to do that, I think the Jazz take another level and they get they enter that 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 uh, upper echelon of contenders that include like the both LA teams and the Rockets, the Bucks, the Sixers. Because um, right now I think they're just slightly on the outside looking in. Now, now the next team that I'll that I'll talk about is the Denver Nuggets. Uh, if you listen to the the previous podcast I did where I I talked about the Western Conference standing predictions. Um, I had the Nuggets getting the one seed. And like like I said in that episode, I don't by any stretch mean that I think they're the best team in the West. I just think that they'll have the best regular season record. Um, now, they're, this was another one similar to the Clippers where it was hard to choose one player because there are a ton of, a ton of uh, X-Factor role player guys on the, on the Nuggets who would all be solid choices. And I think I can make a case for, you know, at least like three or four other guys, but I went with Michael Porter Jr. Uh, the guys that I was debating between outside of Michael Porter Jr. were Jeremy Grant, Will Barton, and Torrey Craig. Now, each one of those four guys have something in common. They're all battling for the for the starting small forward position uh, with the Nuggets. Now, each one of Grant, Barton, and Craig, each one of those guys all have you know their one specific area of the game that they're that they really excel in. But ultimately, I ended up going with Michael Porter because I think not only is he the biggest unknown out of the four because we really we actually haven't seen him play a single regular season NBA game, but he's also, in my opinion, he has the most potential to be like a, a serious transcendent player out of those guys. I feel like the other three guys, we kind of know what they are at this point in their careers. But again, Michael Porter is a 6'10 small forward who can handle the ball he can make plays for himself and others, and he's also he's not a freak athlete, but he's athletic enough and quick enough, and seems to have really high basketball IQ and really good instincts uh, that will that help him be a, a disruptive player on defense, and he's just like a really versatile defender as well. Now, 
I want to get into this, uh, this like comparison, if you will. So I mentioned it in that, that other episode uh, where I did the Western Conference standings, but I want to get, get into this idea a little more in depth. So, so Michael Porter Jr. was a highly recruited prospect out of high school who went to a, a, random, a random college for one year, uh, random in the sense that they're not known as like a basketball powerhouse. Michael Porter Jr. went to Mizzou, and then after his one year in college, he became a, a top 10 pick in the NBA who sat out his first season uh, because of an injury. And, and he'll also be 21 when, when he actually starts his first real season of actually playing in the league, knock on wood, because hopefully he doesn't get injured again. Now, there are two guys who in recent memory who have taken very similar paths to the start of their career. And so the first one is Blake Griffin, who did one year at, at Oklahoma, random school. He was 21 years old, his actual rookie year when he first actually played, and he averaged 23 points per game, 12 rebounds, and four assists per game. Now the next one, more recently, is Ben Simmons, who went to uh, LSU, again, random school, and again was 21 during his first actual season of playing. He averaged 16 points, 8 rebounds, 8 assists per game. Now Michael Porter Jr., like I said, has all those other you know similar characteristics, like the school and all that. Then he's also about to be 21 this season, and all three of those guys are 6'10". Now obviously Blake Griffin and Ben Simmons have some some weight and some muscle mass on Michael Porter, but that's because he's a rookie this season and they're not, obviously. Now they're all they all they all have uh, similar skill sets as well. So they're all big wings who, like I said, can ball handle and make plays. And for all three of them, shooting is definitely their most glaring weak spot. Now the main difference between Michael Porter and the other two guys is that he's not going to be asked to carry nearly the same load on offense that both Ben Simmons and Blake Griffin were asked to carry, but that's because they were both number one picks. Michael Porter Jr. was the number 10 pick, I believe. But I I think that's ideal for him because, you know, to be honest, I don't, like I I did this whole comparison, but I don't think he's on the same level as Blake Griffin and Ben Simmons. But I do think that he can be maybe 75 to 80% of the players that, that those guys have become or are trending towards. And since he won't be asked to handle the same load on offense, I think this is where his defensive versatility will really come into play. And I think that's what will separate him from, from the other uh, small forwards on the Nuggets roster uh, because, because he can just focus on defense. So he could focus on you know, just being disruptive on the defensive end, getting in the passing lanes, getting help side blocks, and then making plays for others on offense and just pushing the pace and just running fast breaks instead of having to worry about, oh, I have to get my 25, 20 points per game. Uh, every night. Now, the biggest thing that he'll have to work on, of course, to actually either win that starting small four spot or solidify himself as like the go-to option off the bench um, is is his shooting, of course. Now, so far in preseason, which is obviously a small sample size and still preseason, he shot 14% from three. 14, one, four. Now, what that means, what that, what that says to me is that right now he's a 6'10 Lonzo Ball. But just like Lonzo, who, who spoiler alert, I'll get to later in the episode, if Michael Porter can knock down the open shots at just even just a slightly above average rate, then the Nuggets suddenly become serious contenders. And similar to what I said about the Jazz, I think they they move up closer to that that serious contender upper echelon, um, because Nikola Jokic and Jamal Murray are the undisputed you know main main focal points on offense for the Nuggets. 
So that means opposing defenses will have to key, key in on those two guys, which will lead to a ton of opportunities for Michael Porter to get open looks, uh, cut off the ball, just get easy baskets here or there. Next up, we have the Philadelphia 76ers. And my X factor for the Sixers this season is Tobias Harris. Now, he was on the team last season, got traded uh, midseason, early in the season from the Clippers. Mm-hmm. Now, if he if he can get back to the level that he was playing at when he was on the Clippers last season, before he got traded, where he was averaging 21 points per game and shot 43.5% from three, um, I think if he can do that, then he'll obviously be able to replace some of the biggest areas that the Sixers lost this season uh, you know, with the departures of Jimmy Butler and J.J. Redick. So ideally, he, can, he would be able to replace some of that crunch time, go-to scoring ability that, that Jimmy Butler brought to the table, and Josh Richardson would, would ideally uh, replace the defensive pr- productivity that Butler brought. And then if Tobias Harris can shoot anywhere close to that 43.5% clip from three that he was shooting on the Clippers, then obviously that, that does a lot to replace J.J. Reddick's floor spacing ability. Um, so if he's able to knock down threes at that clip, it'll be, it'll be huge and it'll help a ton with, with, uh, with how well Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons are able to perform this season as well, because it'll, it'll help space the floor for both of them. And as we've seen the past couple seasons, the Sixers main problem on offense has been floor spacing, because that's what happens when your best player is a, a back to the basket center and your, your second best player is, is a point guard who can't shoot. So if, if Tobias Harris is able to knock down threes like this, like he was, uh, that'll make their offense flow a lot better uh, because Josh Richardson's a solid shooter and Al Horford is also a big man who can knock down the three. Now, on top of having to improve, not even improve his offense because he, w- he was at this stage before. So as long as Tobias Harris can get back to where he was on offense, he also needs to improve on the defensive end. And he doesn't have to be like a lockup, you know, Kawhi level wing defender, but he just has to just not be a, a negative on defense and just not be a guy that the opposing team can just constantly pick on. Because as of now, he's really the only weak link on the defensive end on that starting five. Every everyone else in the starting five is like is excellent to elite as a defender. So he should just because he's gonna the Sixers are going to need him to guard some pretty you know some pretty good players when it comes to when it comes to matching up with with some of the other best teams so like when they play the Clippers for example you're gonna have to ask him to guard either Kawhi or Paul George when they play the Lakers he might have to guard LeBron uh when when they play the Celtics he'll probably have to guard Jason Tatum so what what type of strides does he make on the defensive end and again can he get back to the level of score and three-point shooter that he was on the Clippers last season before he got traded to the Sixers. Now, last but not least, we go to the New Orleans Pelicans, probably the most exciting league pass team of the season. Uh, and their X, their X factor, this was a tough one for me. It came down to two X Lakers. It was between Lonzo Ball and Brandon Ingram. But I, I ended up going with Lonzo Ball in the end. Now, Lonzo Ball is already an excellent, if not elite, defender and playmaker. Um, he, and so far this, this preseason, he's looked a lot more confident and just, just comfortable overall shooting the ball. And his shot is just, with him, it, it's, really, it's really more about, like, obviously you like to see the improvements in the mechanics because now his shot actually looks like 
he's not slingshotting it from the left side of his body. He's actually bringing it more, you know, straight up and down like a normal, like how you're taught to shoot a basketball in third grade. Um, but it's also the more impressive thing to me and just the better sign for me is that he's actually just taking these shots and not hesitating because what he used to do when he was on the Lakers was he would get it, he would have an open three and he would hesitate for just a second. And when, you know, when you do that, as soon as you think about it for a second, you already lost right there. You're probably going to miss it. Um, so now it looks like he, he's, he should be able to at least shoot a solid percentage. Uh, you know, at least league average is the hope. So if he can do that, if he can at least just knock down the open threes, you know, when teams leave him and, and almost more importantly, he should, he needs to improve his free throws too. Uh, but if he can do those two things that will really unlock the full potential of this, this Pelicans team and the full potential of this Pelicans team is playoffs, maybe even like the seventh seed, to be honest. Um, now, Zion Williamson, the one hold that he has in this game is obviously his shooting, but he's already a really good passer. So, you know, if, if, if Zion's getting doubled, which I'm sure he will, because it's going to be hard for even, you know, even veteran wings or veteran power forwards to match him, they're going to have to double him. And who's going to leave their man to go double Zion? It's probably going to be Lonzo Ball's defender who's going to leave him open to go double Zion. So so if Lonzo's able to knock those open threes down, it'll just make it that much harder for teams to leave to leave or to go double Zion. Now of course of course it's important that Lonzo knocks down the threes in the half court when, you know, when someone's double teamed and, you know, the ball gets swung to him. But and bear with me here, I think it might be even more important. I think his ability to knock down these shots, these three-pointers, or just even mid-range, but mostly threes in transition, will be equally, if not more important. So the Pelicans, obviously, it doesn't take you know a basketball genius to notice this, but the Pelicans will obviously be at their best when they're playing 150 miles per hour, just you know pushing the fast break at every opportunity, just running on everything. And with the way that Lonzo plays the passing lanes, and you combine that with his his rebounding ability for a guard, he's going to be getting a lot of steals and rebounds that will you know turn directly into fast breaks. So I, it seems like people are going to be forced to basically ignore Lonzo on the fast break because everyone's going to expect him to give the ball up, right? He has all these weapons around him. Why would anyone expect him to take the ball all the way? So not only will he have to do that, you know, push push the pace, while you know the main goal for him should be get to the basket and score, and then if anyone helps, that's when he should kick it instead of, you know, pushing the pace with the intention to pass. So score first and then look for the pass. Now, when when the Pelicans are on the fast break, the opposing team, their biggest worry is obviously going to be Zion because that's going to be like the main goal for most teams when they play the Pelicans is don't let him throw down one of those insane, you know, house of high, house of highlights, just crazy dunks in transition. So I think there's going to be a lot of times where Pelicans are on a fast break and you see two guys on defense run to cover Zion. That's obviously going to lead. That means someone's open if two or more players are going to Zion. Now on the perimeter in these instances, JJ Redick, obviously every time there's a fast break, he's going to be running right to his favorite spot on the three-point line. And obviously you can't leave him open. So similar to how people are going to double Zion on the fast break, I bet there's going to be a bunch of times where multiple people go try and cover J.J. Redick because they don't want you know they don't want their coach to yell at them for being the guy who left J.J. Redick open for a transition three. So there's going to be tons of instances this season where on a fast break, Lonzo gives up the ball. And if it doesn't lead directly to a shot or a dunk, 
he'll be left wide open right after the pass. So he has to be just ready to shoot. Like when he gives it up, he can't just stand there and expect his teammate to shoot it. He has to be ready to get a quick pass back and knock down a shot. Kind of like how, you know, Lonzo always gets the Jason Kidd comparisons. When Jason Kidd took that next step in his career, uh, it was when he was able to at least just knock down open threes in transition at, you know, at a semi-respectable rate. That's what I keep going back to, but it's that's really what it comes down to. Um, and then once once Lonzo shows his ability and confidence in knocking down these shots, that will mean that teams won't be able to leave him as often, which will then, it'll swing the other way, where that means that Redick and Zion and guys like that will be open more often. Because at the end of the day, Lonzo, as we know, likes to pass the ball. And I think, you know, he gets more joy or more satisfaction from seeing his teammate make a shot off of his pass than he does from himself making a shot. Now, obviously, you know, I left out some of the some of the contenders like the Bucks or the Warriors, but I just didn't think that there's like a, a clear cut X factor on those teams because we can't, those teams are already kind of just we already know the players on those teams. And, you know, like for the Warriors example, uh, D'Angelo Russell would probably be the X factor for them, but he's he just made an all star team. He averaged over 20 points per game. We kind of know what to expect from him. Obviously, the Warriors would like to see him do his best Clay Thompson impersonation next season and, you know, really take a huge step forward on the defensive end. But is that realistic at all? I don't think so. So that's really the the main thing with all these, these players who I just went through and discussed is that these expectations for them are best case scenarios for, you know, them and their teams to take a leap. But I think that they're all extremely realistic to expect. Now that that'll do it for this episode, and I really hope you enjoyed it. And if you if you don't mind, please like, review, subscribe on uh, on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You can do that. Just search the Ball Till You Fall podcast, and the next episode will most likely be me and Wyatt recapping Week Seven of the NFL season. So be on the lookout for that in the next couple of days in your feed. Uh, thanks again for listening, and remember that the NBA season starts this Tuesday, October twenty second. So make sure that you call in sick to work, cancel all your doctors or dentist appointments that you may have, and just by any means do whatever it takes to make sure that you're in front of a TV by like 5 p.m. at the very latest.